Well, we are continuing uh, this uh, follow series, and the title for this message is somewhat unusual. It is Rocks and Stones, Rocks and Stones, and in a moment, we're going to dive into 1 Peter chapter 2. We're looking at the two epistles or letters that Peter uh, wrote. There are some days of our lives that are red letter, special standout days, And for me, the day that I became a Christian was certainly that, not only because I decided to follow Jesus that day, but get this everybody, five minutes after I made the decision to follow Jesus, I met a young lady called Kay, who uh, as it turns out, I will be married to for 40 years next year. So uh, here's what happened, in the same five minutes of my life, I met Jesus and I met Kay. That was pretty good, I'm thinking. You know, that was, that was a good deal. I mean, it didn't immediately go smoothly because I showed up at that church with a very good-looking friend who Kay noticed first and was kind of into him. But she quickly saw the light. And I'm over that now. So a few weeks later, we're dating, you know, and, and uh, it's going really well. And then she relocates. She, she moves out of town with her parents who moved to another city. So uh, the only thing to do was to write letters. And this is an antique method of communication. <laughs> you see, there was a time in history when there was no email. It was a beautiful time. And there was no Facebook. You actually had to sit down and write a letter. And so I wrote all these letters to Kay, and she wrote back. And here's the thing. She kept them. And I'm really scared that someone's going to find them. (laughs) Because they are a horrendous mixture of romanticism and Christian (laughs) hyper-enthusiasm. Because I'm falling in love, and I'm following Jesus, and it's all... It's all completely crazy. Like, dear Kay, I think you're gorgeous. Praise the Lord. (laughs) You're so cute. Blessed be his holy name. You know, it's like, ah. And the thought that anyone, including my kids, would read them. It's horrifying. We're reading someone's mail. We are reading Peter's letters. Peter wrote to a group of scattered Christians who were living in what today is modern Turkey. And last weekend, Pastor Dick Foth, don't you love Foth? That guy is so awesome. And I sat out there and listened to Pastor Foth unpack 1 Peter chapter 1. And he talked about being called and chosen, living holy lives, hearing and trusting God's voice. And now as we begin in a moment to dive into uh, the second chapter, uh, Paul talks, uh, Peter talks about rocks and stones. Now, let me say this. We're also looking, uh, particularly in our small groups at the moment, at Peter's life. We're looking at his letters, and in small groups, we're looking at his life. And we're seeing synergies between the two. 
There was one episode that I think is a fascinating backdrop to this chapter that happened to Peter when Jesus took his disciples on a trip to a place called Caesarea Philippi. In New Testament times, it was called that. But originally, it was called Panaeus. And the reason it was called Panaeus is because this was a place of occult worship originally set up for the worship of the god Pan, hence the term Panaeus. Pan was believed to be the immoral god of desolate places. Pan had a scream that could terrify you. That's where we get the word panic from. But not only was this a place where Pan was worshipped, sometimes it's believed perhaps human sacrifices took place, but you could pick your god there. Uh, one Israeli tourist guide, we take folks who come to Israel with us to this place. The, tourist, the tour guide uh, told us, he described it as a supermarket of gods. You could take your pick. Whichever god, if Pan didn't work for you, just take your pick. And it's interesting that it is at that place, at the grocery store of gods, that Jesus said to his disciples, who do you say I am? They're invited to choose. We read about it in Matthew 16. Have a look. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do, you, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, that's really interesting, because you see, when you go to, the, when you go to this place today, you will see this place. It's a cave, and it was in this cave that sacrifices were offered on that stone there in that cave. And the locals in Jesus' day believed that that was the gate of hell. They called it the gate of hell. So here is Jesus saying to Peter, this truth is so powerful, the gates of hell will not stand against this church that I am building. So Peter has heard all of this rock language about himself, but now he, ch he changes direction and he uses rocks and stones to describe not only Jesus, but also us. So as we, we turn to 1 Peter 2, let's know that Peter is writing to scattered Gentile converts and he wants them to know that they are now part of a new building, as it were, a new building that will replace and is replacing the fabulous temple in Jerusalem. Jesus, the foundation of that building, us, them, as living stones. And as Peter does that, he trades upon, he draws upon a well-known metaphor of that day. Now, we're going to have to do a little bit of work here, okay? Because I really want you to understand First Peter 2. And in order for that to happen, 
I am going to have to, in the next few minutes, weave together 10 elements of the Bible to illustrate what this is really all about. So we're going to have to do a little work. So, so just nudge the person next to you and say, like, buckle up here, because we're going to do some work. Just nudge them. Just nudge them. Say, we're going to do some work here. Some of you refused to do that just then. You're like, don't you come over here and tell us who to nudge when. That's what the 4th of July is all about. Get out of town, dude. <laughs> Ten strands. Are you ready? Everyone say yes. Seven centuries before Christ, Isaiah had a vision of a precious cornerstone. Isaiah 28, see I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who trusts will never be dismayed. 700 years before Jesus, Isaiah has this vision of a stone, strand number one. A hundred years later, a pagan king called Nebuchadnezzar has a terrifying dream about a about a rock, a rock that was cut out but not by human hands. Daniel interprets that dream. So you've got Isaiah's stone, you've got Daniel's rock. Strand number three, Psalm 118, talks about the stone the builders rejected becoming the cornerstone, the foundation stone. Strand number four, that meant that Israel interpreted all that to mean that God would come and literally dwell in the Jerusalem temple. Where does the stone come in? Well, they believed the temple was built on a particular foundation stone and the presence of God would dwell there. Strand number five. The word stone and the word sun in Hebrew is very, very similar. So Jesus used the similarity to do a little pun, to do a little gag joke, if you will, with a little twist on a story. He told a story, the parable of the talents, about a son who was rejected. And at the end of the story, he does this little twist and he starts talking about a stone. He plays on words, pulling all that together. Strand number six, I think it is. How does the stone, the stone and the sun join up? Well, in 2 Samuel 7, God promised David that his son would build the temple in Jerusalem and that out of that line would come one who would be the son of God himself. Strand number eight, remember Psalm 118. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Mark 14, it's the Last Supper. The next day, Jesus is going to be crucified. And Mark tells us, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Wouldn't you love to know what song they sang during that meal? We know. Because during that part of the Passover feast, they would have sang the Hallel, which is Psalm 118, or includes Psalm 118. So before Jesus goes to the cross, he sings with his friends, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So then Paul, in his writings, picks that truth up, Ephesians chapter 2, Christ is the cornerstone. Peter uses the imagery of a stone, talking to the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 4, and then over here in 1 Peter 2, Peter brings it all together and says the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Why did I tell you all that? 
And why did I just wear out dear Amy sitting over there who's working really hard and give her a round of applause for the beautiful ministry that she is fulfilling? Why did I tell you all of that? Because I want you to see the wonderful unity of Scripture. I want you to see the God of the big picture who 700 years before Jesus speaks to Isaiah. It's amazing how it all comes together. Christ is the new foundation. We are living stones in him. So what does that mean on a Monday morning? What does that, what does that mean? Well, let's follow along in the bulletin. First of all, we see that we are called to be a sign and a wonder, a new temple. We are called to be a sign and a wonder, a new temple. Listen to Peter's words. And you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. What's more, you are his holy priests. Through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. As the scriptures say, I am placing a cornerstone in Jerusalem, chosen for great honor, and anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Yes, you who trust him recognize the honor God has given him. But for those who reject him, the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. The temple in Jerusalem was amazing. We can't see it for reasons I'm about to explain. But here's an artist's impression of what the temple looked like. It was beautiful and amazing and I've walked up the temple steps. You can still walk the steps that lead to that court of the Gentiles. It's an amazing experience. Jesus walked those steps. But when Jesus visited the temple one day, here's what he said. He said, it's coming down. And his disciples must have thought, what? This is the centerpiece of the nation, the temple, the beautiful temple. People making pilgrimages throughout the year. Look at what Matthew 24 says. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things, he said? Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. 34 years later, August the 30th, AD 70, the prophecy was fulfilled. The Romans sacked the temple. I think we've got a picture of some of the stones that you see today um, from uh, the Western Wall area. Not necessarily in any way the original stones of the temple. That's not the suggestion. But these things were huge blocks. And Jesus said, it's coming down. Now let's pull that together. After the day of Pentecost, get this, the new temple... The new temple is us. God dwelling among his people, the Holy Spirit coming, the place where God dwells. You see, just as the original temple was designed to be a sign and a wonder that would point people to God, so now the people of God are designed to be a sign and a wonder that will be point people to God. I mentioned becoming a Christian when I was 17 back in 1834. And back then we used to say something like this, don't look at us, don't look at us, look at Jesus. That was crazy for a couple of reasons. Number one, Jesus is currently invisible, so that's awkward. And secondly, God's intention has always been 
that there would be a sign and a wonder that points to him. Temple, now the new temple, the people of God. God wants the world to look at us and see Jesus. Some people don't become followers of Jesus because they don't know any Christians. Some people don't become followers of Jesus because they do know some Christians. How do we look? We've had a bit of trouble domestically this week. We have a demon-possessed refrigerator. It is a vile and unclean thing. It keeps messing up. I keep calling the guy out, and he comes out, and he fixes it, and then the demons kick in, and, and it's getting frustrating. And I've been calling the helpline of the manufacturer, repeated calls, and they call me back, and I call them, and it's just been frustrating, and, you know, difficult dealing with this company. I won't be wrong to point to Electrolux. And I've uh, <laughs> been dealing with that. And this, I, I got a bit frustrated this week. And I, I got on the phone to, to the company, and um, I, I, was, I was nice and, and kind, but just a little tiny, 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 itsy bitsy bit sarcastic. <laughs> little, 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 little twist in there twist. and then I got off the phone and I thought how would I have felt if at the end of the conversation she had said by the way Pastor Jeff <laughs> loving those cowboy boots I'd have gone <laughs> you go to Timberline what a joy let love live. <laughs> you see, I should be the same all the time. So should you. We're not called to act in a certain way because people know that we're Christians. We're called to act consistently in such a way that might provoke people to say to us, are you a Christian because of the way you act? How do we look? How do we look? We represent him. Secondly, we're called to a new identity as worshippers. A new identity of, as worshippers. A new priesthood, God's possession. You are royal priests, Peter says. A holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God. For he called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you had no identity as a people, now you are God's people. Once you received no mercy, now you have received God's mercy. Now, this is radical. I'll tell you why. This echoes what God said in Exodus through Moses to Israel. Exodus 19, you'll be my own people more than any other nation. The whole earth is mine. You'll be my royal priesthood and holy nation, God said to Israel. What does that mean? It means we belong to him. There's a consistent theme in the New Testament that we are now God's possession. In fact, the glory of heaven, Revelation chapter 21, they shall be his people. God himself shall be with them and be their God. But it also means that not only are we priests, every one of us, did you know you're a priest? But you're also a royal priest. You're royalty. You are royalty. You say, I don't want to be royal. I'm an American. Well, you haven't got any choice. I, I'm encouraged by this because as a British chap, you know, I'm not that close to Elizabeth. 
You say, who's Elizabeth? Her Majesty. When we're together privately, I call her Brenda. <laughs> hey, Brenda. Hey, Jeffrey. She calls me all the time. It's so irritating. One of those corgi dogs gets sick. She calls me. It's irritating. No, I don't care. <laughs> I'm loving the fact that some of you are believing this right now. You're going, Whoop. I've never met her. I met her husband once, life-changing experience for him. <laughs> I'm not royal. I, I stand outside Buckingham Palace wondering what they're doing. I know what they're doing. They're drinking tea. What else do they do? They do lots of things. But you and I, we are members of the royal priesthood of the king. They used to, in those days, back in biblical times, the king would often have his own group of priests. Being a priest is a big thing. You had to be born into a special family. You couldn't just sign up. I want to be a priest. You had special rights to go into certain places in the tabernacle and temple. But we are now called priests. And we are called to offer sacrifices. Did you know that? Spiritual sacrifices, Peter says. You say, are we going to like get, start messing with animals and stuff? No. Spiritual sacrifices like offering our bodies to God. To his service, Romans 12. Our financial giving for the spread of the gospel, Philippians 4. The singing of praise, Hebrews 13. Ladies and gentlemen, we are called to worship. The Bible is loaded with the invitation and exhortation that we should declare God's praises. All right, pray for Amy right now because here we go again. In Genesis, you've got Adam and Eve communing with God in the garden. There's a snake in the grass. And then the patriarchs immediately begin to build their altars. In Exodus, the tabernacle is established, the center of national life. Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the establishment of the elaborate sacrificial system. In established Israel, they worship God, they worship idols, they worship God, they worship idols. The psalmist repeatedly calls us to worship. Psalm 511, let all who take refuge in the Lord rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. Psalm 22 and verse 3, God inhabits the praises of his people. Psalm 29 verse 11, give to the Lord the glory due to his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty or the splendor of holiness. Psalm 32 verse 11, be glad in the Lord and rejoice you righteous. Shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. Psalm 47 verse 1, clap your hands, all you people. Shout unto God with the voice of triumph. Psalm 98 verse 4, make a joyful noise unto the Lord. Break forth into joyous songs and sing praises. I need oxygen. In the Acts, in the book of Acts, the early church is birthed in prayer and praise. In the Gospels, going back to the Gospels, Jesus reveals, John chapter 4, the Father is looking for those who will worship him in spirit and in truth in the epistles the corinthian letters about about order in worship james speaks about superficiality in worship ephesians the great vision of christ drawing us to worship colossians don't be super spiritual in your worship. Galatians, the defense of freedom in worship. First Peter, we're looking at it, the royal priesthood. Hebrews, summoning us into the holy of holies to worship God. And the book of Revelation, worthy, worthy, worthy is the Lamb. God, God wants us to worship. 
How many would like to help the preacher? How many would like to help the preacher? Well, thanks a lot. How many would agree the preacher needs help? Yeah. You can help. I'll tell you why. Sunday gatherings, Saturday night gatherings are not a spectator event. I and others like me can stand up here and talk about how good God is, but the amen comes from the worship of God's people. How many drink Dr. Pepper? How many people drink that stuff? Raise your hand if you do. Bless your hearts. I mean, come forward for prayer. Carbonated prune juice. Actually thinking about it, carbonated prune juice. Stay right where you are. If I went to a Dr. Pepper convention, I'd never drunk the stuff. And we all stand together and let's sing a song. I'm a pepper, you're a pepper, all peppers, whatever. Did I make that up or did I hear that somewhere? And then sister so-and-so stands up and says, Dr. Pepper's changed my life. And over there, brother so-and-so, he's a bit strange, but he gets up and he says, everything's different now because of Dr. Pepper. I think two things. Number one, you're weird. Number two, I'm thinking I should try that Dr. Pepper. And when the preacher stands and says, Jesus is wonderful and Jesus is alive, the congregation can join in with the amen of worship, not the frozen chosen spectators. Man, I'm messing with you now. We British people don't get excited. For those of you watching on the internet, I apologize for this momentary burst of enthusiasm. We can bring the amen. Brag on Jesus. Number three. We're called to a new way of living as resident aliens. A new way of living as resident aliens. Listen to Peter, dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they'll see your honorable behavior and they'll give honor to God when he judges the world. Peter is Peter's saying this, hey, your primary identity now is resident aliens because you're kingdom people. So, and it's different here in the kingdom. Don't bring it up yet, but I'm about to show you something really scary. It is my resident alien card, because I am a, I'm not a citizen here. I'm a resident alien, Nanu, Nanu. <laughs> and this picture on my card is so scary. I'm not, I'm not messing with you. I actually went to check in at an airline, and the guy jumped back when he saw my picture, and he went, whoa! How rude is that? Are you ready? Now, brace yourself. If you're of a nervous disposition, look away. <laughs> Bring that thing up. Look at that. <laughs> oh. Oh. There's a man with abdominal cramps. <laughs> Take it down. Take it down. See, things are different here. This is America. In England, your pants are your underwear. 
pants or underwear in England. A friend of mine came to England. We were in a big group. His wife's 20 yards away. He said, honey, I'm just going to go back to the room to change my pants. People turned and looked. <laughs> it's different here. The, the sidewalk is the pavement. What you call the sidewalk, we call the pavement. Someone said park on the pavement. I parked on the sidewalk. <laughs> we have the bonnet. You have the hood. We have the boot. You have the trunk. And even like ordering food is difficult. Mexican food, like I went out and I ordered enchiladas. <laughs> I'll, I'll have a chicken enchilada, please, and a couple of those burritos and maybe one of those tacos. Actually, I actually said tacos. <laughs> okay, tacos. The time's even different. We just went daylight savings time this weekend. Next Saturday is daylight savings time. Do we go forward or back? We go next Saturday, but it's different. And Peter is saying, it's different now. It's different here. Has Jesus made any difference? If we are followers of Jesus and he's made no difference, we better check. And by the way, it's a new way of living, but it's the old way of living because Peter is calling us to live the way that humanity was originally designed to live. Does he make a difference? Well, the last thing is this. We are called to follow a perfect example, the Christ who suffered. Peter says in verse 21 of chapter 2, for God called you to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. He is your example, and you must follow in his steps. The phrasing that Peter uses here invokes two images because of the words that he uses. The first is of a child following an adult's alphabetical writing and tracing on that writing to learn how to write. It's a lovely picture. The second picture that is created by the wording here is of placing your foot into the footsteps made by another. There's footsteps in the mud. Let's do it Colorado. There's footsteps in the snow and you pick your way forward by placing your foot in those footsteps. You see, Peter's pointing a truth to us. Jesus didn't just come to save us. He came to show us how to live. We follow. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great German leader, lost his life. Just before the war ended, the cost of discipleship. Jesus is the pattern we must follow, he said. Because he really lives his life in us, we too can walk even as he walked, do as he has done, love as he has loved, forgive as he forgave. Have this mind, which was also in Christ Jesus, Lay down our lives for the brothers and sisters just as, just as he did. He's our example. But I need to say this. He's not just our example. Anyone remember WWJD? Remember that? And it stands for, what would Jesus do? Now, that's a great starting question, but it's only a starting question. First of all, because we don't know exactly what Jesus would do under every circumstance. Would he have a fixed rate mortgage or an adjustable? <laughs> I'm not being irreverent. There are certain decisions we might make where there's not a cut and dried answer. 
But the second more important truth is this. Jesus is not just our example. Peter points that out. But he's also our empowerer. Because you see, it's not just that we trace his example, that we put our feet in his footsteps. The Christian life is not just a body of ideas that we've got to desperately try and follow. No, everybody, Jesus is alive. Wherever you are, you may come with me everywhere I go. (laughs) Jesus is alive. He is raised from the dead. But it's not just that we get a little bit excited about that, as we just do. But the very same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead, that power is at work in us. Oh, my wife's going to tell me off for this one. She's going to say, Jeffrey, you got a bit shouty. (laughs) That same power that caused, that provoked a pulse to suddenly begin again. And up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph o'er his foes. And that power is available to us for the transformation of our lives. So listen up. We are members of the new temple, not made of hands, but a body of flesh that is a sign and a wonder. We are members of the royal priesthood. So let's say so and declare the goodness not of a carbonated beverage, but of the beautiful God. And let's walk in his footsteps, empowered by his spirit. Let's pray. We bless you, Lord, for the unbelievable, remarkable privilege, and yet we do believe it, that you've called fragile, in the process, human beings like us to be part of your temple. A sign and a wonder. Lord, when we give ourselves time off from being a Christian, in that conversation, in that moment of pressure, help us... Help us to live truly as resident aliens. It's different here. We are members of the royal priesthood. Help us in our individual lives and in our coming together as church to declare your praises. For God is good. And you are our example. And yet more than that, You empower us to be your people. So we thank you for the privilege. Help us this week to be a sign and a wonder that turns heads and hearts. We agree together in Jesus' name. Everyone said.